Welcome to Travel Stories with your hosts, Trevor Mountcastle and Tom Kim. This week, we return to a pilot's perspective with Steve. Steve, welcome, and thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me, guys. It's been a while, Trevor. I know that we did a podcast a long time ago with you and Joe, but it's nice to meet you, TK and Tom, and also to be back and talking to you as well, Trevor. Yeah, it's, it's a real pleasure to have another pilot on the podcast. Always great to see a pilot's perspective and, and kind of see the other side of, you know, what, what goes on in, in, you know, that airplane that Trevor and I are in all the time, but, you know, obviously on the backside. Well, it may not be as exciting as you think sometimes, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, gosh, you're usually the only one that can sit more forward in the cabin or in the aircraft than, than we prefer to sit. <laughs> so it's definitely a different perspective. So, Steve, obviously, we've had you on the Rusty observation deck. So, hopefully, for those listeners that have kind of followed us, the travel stories, they have some familiarity with you. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background? Sure. I went to college thinking about going to med school and got into flying. I went to a little school in South Dakota and did a little flying program and got into flying there because of one of the guys on my soccer team. And I promise I won't drag this out, but one of, the, one of the guys on my soccer team was doing it. This is kind of in the Top Gun days, and he was trying to get in the Navy. Everybody's trying to get into the military back then. If you can, if, with the latest Top Gun movie that came out, I don't know if it had as big of an impact on people that want to fly as the first one did. But back in the 80s, I date myself there. It was a pretty big deal. So I kind of quickly shifted, changed, uh, got, was lucky enough to go through a ROTC program, got a pilot slot, uh, ended up flying for the Air Force. That's where I got my training, flying cargo planes, the C-141. Once again, another plane, which has been retired. It seems like I've retired two of them so far and, and I'm still going. So I guess that's a good sign. But the other one being the MD-80, which is not no longer in service around at least the U.S. generally. Uh, the good old Mad Dog. The Mad Dog, yeah. <laughs> so flew cargo planes for the Air Force for 10 years on active duty, then finished up another 10 in the reserves. But while I was in reserves, I was able to, lucky enough to get on with Alaska about 25 years ago now. And so I've been uh, flying the Mad Dog and the 737 since. You know, I didn't realize that uh, that Alaska flew the Mad Dog. Yeah, they were actually, I don't know this for sure, but it was said back in the day that they were actually thinking about going all MD-80. So they bought a small airline called Jet America, which was based out of the LA area. And they had all Mad or MD-80s back in that day. And so at one point they were thinking about it, but then the MD-80 was just, you know, it was a great plane to fly, but fuel efficient wise, it wasn't the best. A little bit different than the 717 that Hawaiian flies. Uh, they have better, more fuel-efficient engines, and they pivoted to the 7.3, and I think that was probably a good good move by them. I miss a good old Mad Dog. I, you know, the 2.3 configuration is is pretty good in coach, you know. Yeah. Yeah, unless you're between the engines. <laughs> you, well, you, you know, hopefully you're smart enough to get in the front of the plane. Yeah, my first trip for work was uh, back-to-back MD-80s going to Vegas via, I think, Dallas. And our travel agent uh, for work put me right between the engines. I avoided going to them ever again. <laughs> I'll tell you one of the cool things about flying the MD-80 from the front and when you sat in first class too, when you took off, it was super quiet. You could not hear the engines at all until the wind noise picked up over the fuselage. So it was kind of a really cool takeoff. And almost a little bit eerie when you took off in snow. We had a couple of situations where we were flying. We actually got diverted flying American from Dallas to BWI. We got diverted to Pittsburgh and due to snow. And it just felt like because you don't hear the engine noise and you, you've got just, I don't know, it just felt eerie to me. <laughs> <laughs> 
So you've been flying 737s for quite some time, I think you said. What was your first 737, I guess you call them a variant? Well, we had the 400, the 737-400. They had the 200 originally when I first got on, but I never flew that. That was up in Alaska only. And what was kind of cool about that was they actually flew that into, there was a mine that it now has a paved runway, but at the time when I first got hired, they had a dirt runway. And so they would fly up into Red Dog, a mining facility up in the north slope of Alaska, I believe is where it's at. And they had these these like little air things that would shoot out in front of the engine to blow the rocks out so they wouldn't go down the engine. But um, Like the, the gravel kit or something, right? Yeah, the that gravel the, kit. Were, yeah, so you know that's why there were so many 737-200s around all those like northern charter carriers and such because they, they were all doing those you know gravel or dirt runways. Yeah, yeah. And then they flew, and I'm totally drawn a blank, the little island where the world's deadliest catch or all the boats leave out of, and I'm totally drawing a blank on that island for some reason. But but I flew the 400, and when I got on, we had the 400, and then we had a couple of NGs, the 700, and we were the launch customer of the original 900 to at Alaska mm. and Continental. Is the 400 considered the classic? Yeah, so the 300, the 500, and the 400. So I remember Southwest and United had those variants were the classics. And then the NG, I think, started with the 700, 780. So, seven, eight, and 900s were all next generation. Okay, got it. I guess we'll ask one of our first questions. Like, so how do you plan for your month? I imagine it's hard to do all your logistics of, of, you know, how do you get from here to there and how you do everything in between? So, probably the most popular question people ask pilots that I, at least that I get, is what's your route? And your route really changes month to month, week to week, day to day. And it's all based on a seniority system. So for us as pilots, once a month or at the beginning of the month before, you'll you'll go through a bidding period. The airline will publish all the, the different flights that they're going to be flying, say, like in like we're coming up in March. So pretty soon we're going to get a packet of information with all the flights that they plan to fly in March. And then based on your seniority, you'll get a schedule and then, you know, put in your, your wish list of what you want to do. And once again, based on your seniority, you'll get to hold what you hold. For me, we've got... Like Trevor, I'm not sure about UTK. We've got our kids are a little bit older now. I got a 13 year old and a 17 year old, and my wife's a a flight attendant for us as well. And so, really, my schedule revolves around the kids first, and then my wife, and then after that, it's maybe where I want to go, <laughs> and in avoiding some of the flights that I don't want to. So, are, are there some specific routes or cities that you like more than others? Yeah, I kind of mix it up if I can. So, with Alaska. You know, we're predominantly a West Coast carrier, although we've, we kind of fly all over the country now, mainly from the West Coast. We do what we call a mid-con, so out to like someplace like Cincinnati, Indianapolis, or also a whole transcon where you go out to Boston, the DC area where you guys live, Orlando. I just got back from Miami last night. So I kind of like to do the mid-cons and the transcons, and then I'll mix it up with maybe one trip where you're just going up and down the West Coast to spend some time down in sunny California, especially in the winter. I live up in Oregon, and... It's uh, dark and rainy this time of year, so it's nice to get to San Diego where it's sunny. Yeah, I'm pretty familiar with some of those Alaska transcons. I mean, uh, being in the D.C. area, that's pretty much the only way you're going to fly Alaska (laughs) is on a transcon. (laughs) And I love the connectivity. I mean, like Baltimore, for quite some time, we had PDX, we had Seattle, we had San Francisco, we had L.A., and we had San Diego. And I think I've flown almost – I don't think I've flown every route. I might have actually flown every one of those routes when you guys were flying them. I think since they've cut back. Yeah, Baltimore, because we had them out of Portland actually for a while, but I think it's just out of Seattle now. Out of Dulles, I know we got LA, San Diego, Seattle, and then DC, we San Fran and, and whatnot, Seattle, Portland. So I, I do the DC flight quite a bit because my brother lives in the district, so I like to go out there and uh, 
catch up with him. So I always found like the DC approach, you know, especially the one that kind of goes over the Potomac River, you know, kind of like, you know, does a nice curve around, you know, Arlington and, and lands into national. That always seemed to me like number one, one of the most spectacular landings. Because, you know, if you're on that, you know, left side of the plane, I mean, you get to see the Capitol, you get to see the White House, you get to see the Washington Monument, the Kennedy Center, you know, just about everything. But that seems like it would be one of the more complicated maneuvers for a pilot. Is, is that the case or does it just look that way? Yeah, it's actually one of my favorite approaches to do, in all honesty. It started off as a visual approach. So a lot of the regionals, I think, still fly visual approaches down the river. But for like American, for us, United, I know, JetBlue, they've actually built an R&P approach. And so even on the clear days when it's visual, we'll just hook the plane up to the R&P approach Generally, I cook it off because it's fun to fly. The big thing you got to be wary of is the White House is a prohibited area. So as, as you come down, <laughs> as you come down, as you come down the Potomac, gotta there, watch you, out. Yeah, you go by the uh, you go by the Pentagon. You just got to make sure if if you get a crosswind blowing you towards the east there, you don't get pushed over the land. As long as you see over the river, you're good. But that's kind of one of the trickier parts. But after you've done it enough, it's really kind of a fun, challenging little approach. Are there other like kind of approaches that are super complicated? I feel like, you know, San Diego seems like another one of those, you know, where, you know, you come over the mountain and you just kind of go down so quick and it feels like you're touching the buildings. Yeah. You come right over that hillside there and there's actually a parking garage with some monkeys on it. And we always say when we we get past the monkeys, we'll uh, drop down a little bit lower and for the touchdown. But it always gets rated as like one of the toughest approaches. And it's really just because it's a little bit steeper than other approaches, but I've never thought it's like anything like crazy. Really though, and I do not fly these to be completely honest, the Seattle and the Anchorage crews fly it, but we've got some pretty sporty approaches up in Alaska into Juneau oh, and, and okay. some of the places up there. So that's like, to my mind, I guess the place where you'd find something a little bit more trickier. And that's based because of the terrain and things like that? Yeah, especially Juneau. It's kind of like one way in and one way out. And if you have to go around, there's it's going to be pretty tight to do a turnaround. And there's some mountains just to the right and to the left of you. You're kind of in this bowl. So yeah, it could be a little bit tricky that way, but we practice. I mean, now with the RNP, it's made it a, a way more safer than it ever was. And it's something that every year when we go on the sim, we generally uh, fly that approach to the further crews to practice it. And Steve, could you just, for our listeners that might not know uh, what an RMP is or what a visual approach is, could you just walk through? Like Tom, you know, I, I'm one of those listeners that doesn't know what that is. <laughs> okay. So, and this is actually pretty cool because actually it was a pilot at Alaska Airlines that developed it. And so what they did was they figured out that a, a traditional approach is based on uh, ground navigation. So there's like something on the ground that's emitting a beam and the plane's going to intercept it. And you're going to fly that beam down. It's going to bring you into the runway. The most uh, common one now is the ILS. What an RNP does is instead of using a ground-based system like that, what they do is they just actually take GPS points and they build it based on, you know, they figure out like what the average, you know, how fast you have to be coming down, what airspeed you'd be flying to make the turns as you turn and everything like that. They take all those factored in and it, it takes you right down to the runway now. And so instead of hooking it up to a system on the plane that's going to pick up this ground-based signal, you, we just hook it up to the IRSs, which is similar to an IRS, which is, and then the GPSs. And so you've got a redundancy of four different systems looking at that point and we can see how well the system is, how tight the system is, what I mean by like how close we are to that point. And it's got to be within a certain number to be able to stay on the approach and continue the approach. And I mean, I've never seen it go off. I hope this is making sense. But I guess to, all that to say, it's GPS points that take you to the runway. 
and it's got four redundancies in it to make sure that you are where you where the plane thinks it is and you think you are. I was just going to say, I remember my scariest hard landing at DCA, and it was on a Spirit Airlines Mad Dog, as it turns out, <laughs> back when they flew Mad Dogs. I don't know if you ever knew that, but they did that back maybe about 20 years ago. And this was a really old one because they didn't even have doors on the overhead bins. That's how old this thing was. Oh, wow. And that was the hardest landing I ever had. I'm pretty sure they didn't have that system on that Spirit <laughs> Airlines Mad Dog. <laughs> So I, I guess the reason why I've been having all those smooth landings at, at National is probably all the airlines now have that wonderful new system. And that's interesting to know. I, I didn't realize that, that there was a GPS involved in some of that flying now that makes things a lot smoother. Just to clarify, is that essentially autopilot or is that just providing you more specific waypoints that you are targeting as you fly the plane? So you can do it either or. In RNP, it won't auto land. The ILS is you can, there's a provision for it to auto land, but with the RNP approaches, the pilot's going to click it off at some point and fly it. But gotcha. yeah, you can hand fly it or you can let, have the autopilot fly those points as you kind of make your way in. And it's always interesting because, you know, a lot of folks like to say, oh yeah, the plane flies itself or, you know, the plane can practically land itself. But, you know, having been a pilot for as long as you have, have you've probably seen that progression. What has that progression kind of felt like for you? You, you know, I'd imagine that, that, you know, flying cargo in the Air Force, you were probably working a whole lot harder than maybe you are now, you know, throughout the flight. And maybe I, I'm wrong. No, actually, I guess this is what I would say. Now, definitely there's the ability for the planes, but that's been around for a while for, for planes to, to auto land and, and have auto land systems. Really, in all honesty, what's made a difference, there's not a lot of difference as far as the when I first started per se, as far as like actually flying, cause you're, you're going to take it off. You're going to put the autopilot on, you're going to generally going to hook the autopilot up to the navigation system and, and the plane's going to follow it. And then you're going to monitor it. But what we do have now is just so much more information. We've got apps on our iPads to monitor weather well ahead of us where before it was just kind of like, you'd have your radar weather looking out, you know, about a hundred miles. And well, I wonder what's going to happen in an hour. I don't know. But now we've got apps. You can see all the way we took off out of Miami and I can see the weather and the predicted turbulence all the way to Seattle. And that allows us to give, it's not exact science yet, but it gives us, allows us to let the flight attendants, you know, know what's going on so that they can kind of plan their services. If, if we know that it's going to be bumpy coming up. So really it's, it's more, just the information and the way the information is displayed now. I mean, we've got these huge screens, uh, the Max. I don't know if you've ever seen the Max or the 787. I mean, there's these just huge displays up there now. And it's it just makes it a lot easier to monitor stuff than what it used to be with the, the old round dial instruments that, that I started with, I guess. Cool. Yeah. So while we're geeking out here, I thought maybe we could kind of pivot a little bit here. One of the topics we talked about with Brander in that episode was kind of, you know, av geeky routes that you'd love to fly. He had said that he wanted to do the island hopper, something actually that, that Tom and I haven't even done either. Are there any of those kind of interesting routes that you'd like to fly, whether as a pilot or a passenger? You know, I, I think I've been pretty lucky to fly a lot of different places, I guess, with the military around the world. And then, you know, Alaska is just a, when you get to fly up there in the summer, it's just an amazing it's probably one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. I, I'm not sure that there's any place besides maybe getting up into Norway and maybe seeing some of the fjords. I'm not sure you can match the beauty of, of Alaska and Northern Canada like that. But I guess if, if I had an opportunity to do it, I follow this guy on Instagram and he flies the beavers down around the Caribbean. And I would love to do that. <laughs> I've never flown floats before, but just fly, you know, island hop from place to place. And maybe I'm answering the same way Brander did with, but on a float plane and doing that kind of for the winter. Oh, that's sounds Dude, go to the Maldives. 
Yeah. Oh yeah. There you go. There you go. There's definitely they, plenty they of have tons there. of those. Uh, is it the Grumman Otter or what are some of those little planes that they use? Yeah. The Otters and the Beavers, uh, kind of similar different planes. Yeah. Got it. Got it. So pivoting a little bit back to your Air Force experience, what kind of unique or maybe, you know, interesting airports did you get to fly in when you were flying cargo for the Air Force? If you well, can share. Most of the stuff was kind of routine. I went to Frankfurt a lot. They used to have an Air Force base and are right attached to uh, Frankfurt. So I went to Frankfurt quite a bit. I was on the West Coast initially, so I flew over to Japan, Korea, down to Thailand, uh, out to a little island called Diego Garcia, which is out in the Indian Ocean that we rent from the British to support the Navy out in the Indian Ocean. And then I flew, I had an opportunity to fly all over Africa. I got to go to oh, the garden spots like Mogadishu, Somalia, Kigali, Rwanda. Went to Egypt a lot, quite a bit of time in Cairo. So kind of all over the world, really. Uh, one of my favorites, though, was uh, we got three days in Bergen, Oslo in the summer one time. And that was an amazing, normally we didn't get that much time off. It was kind of an amazing, fun trip. And having just been there last year, I have to believe that that would have been a wonderful, wonderful three days. Yeah. Bergen and Oslo are just two amazing cities, aren't they? I haven't made it to Oslo yet, but Bergen okay. was was amazing. We only got half a day there before the skies opened up, but just to be able to walk, it's such a walkable and just such a, I say this jokingly because you know understanding their climate is not terribly warm. It just felt like a very warm city, <laughs> warm and welcoming. Yeah, we, I remember we took the cable car up or the tramway up to the top oh, of the yeah. there and had just a, an amazing view. And then we hiked back down that day. So just my mom's uh, family is actually from outside of Bergen. So that was another reason why we went there, which, or that was another special reason to, or special moment for me to go there, yes. Oh, that's awesome. So, you know, I'm, you know, a pretty big fan of Alaska Airlines. You know, they're like the last, you know, kind of loyalty program that does, you know, you know, fly a mile, earn a mile, you know, in terms of the way you accrue mileage or just curious, you know, are you kind of a, a miles and points guy? I mean, you know, that's kind of a, a good portion of our audience. I think i kind of curious if you participate in, in what we would call the hobby. <laughs> Not to the level that most people do. And I was sitting there thinking about it because I was thinking about this today to try, you know, to have an answer for this. But uh, we do. My wife and I both have the Alaska credit card. We use that as much as we can to accrue miles. And we've been lucky enough to do that. And have been to Europe the last uh, three years, going again and this summer, um, taking our kids. It's just, you know, people go, wow, with the airlines, you get to fly free. Well, that's sort of true. But when we're flying with the kids, everybody else is trying to fly too. So there's not like a lot of seats. So that has kind of forced us into the mileage program, but not to the level that I think maybe some of your listeners do, I guess. And I have to imagine if you're trying to get four seats, that's going to be a whole lot harder to use your airline benefits. Your included benefits. Yeah. And I think you guys know this too. I mean, I don't follow, well, a friend of mine works or is a big Delta person. And my brother's at United or is, flies United exclusively. So I've kind of heard their stories trying to use miles in theirs, but we've been pretty lucky with Alaska because it doesn't take quite as many miles to go to some of the places. And you know, until we joined One World, what was it, about a year and a half, two years ago now, we've always had lots of just different partners that you could use the miles on. And so that's been a great benefit for us to to be able to, to go just to all over the world. Oh, yes. Yeah, I mean, yes. so many unique, you know, carriers that are part of the Alaska plan. I mean, like my friends right now are in Argentina and they flew LATAM uh, down to, and they use their Alaska miles because there are not many programs that you can use your miles with LATAM on other than Delta now and, and still Alaska. So- as you said, a lot of interesting carriers and, you know, that they definitely have lots of options to places like Europe between the very many airlines that they partner with, probably more than probably any domestic airline if, if I had to, th if I had thought about it, I think. Uh, I'm trying to think of an airline in, in the U.S. that has more partners than Alaska. 
Yeah, I don't think you'll find one. I mean, Alaska's just got that wonderful hybrid sort of partnership approach. I almost wonder if Air Canada tried to emulate that. I mean, I would say they're probably the other ones that have a lot of unique partners, including some of those Middle East airlines. Yep, I would agree. Well, there's definitely a conscious decision by our company to do that. And this is just my opinion. I guess I don't know this for a fact, but just from working there that, you know, we can move people around the Pacific Northwest, but you've got to give a value to your frequent flyers through the mileage program to be able to go beyond that. And that was the only way we could compete as far as having that international options for people. No, that, that makes total sense. The interesting thing that I wonder, though, is do you think that award space got more challenging for you when Alaska joined One World? In my head, I'm thinking, you know, Alaska Airlines, how many people are, are going to look at Alaska Airlines and say, I want to earn miles with them? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Their co-brand partnership is Bank of America, not as well known, or I'd offer as big as American Express or Chase or even City. You know, I feel like there were a lot of different components that sort of made it a beautiful program to be able to use. I've flown so many, so many awards on Alaska Airline miles, you know, to Dubai, to Singapore, on Emirates, on Japan Airlines, on Cathay. It was just such a great program. And not to say it's not a great program anymore. Everything changes over time. The only constant is change. But did you feel like you had a harder time finding space after that uh, announcement? Probably just a little bit, but my wife's really our mileage plan expert, and she is on it the minute we're allowed to book. Because we, I mean, with, with the kids and everything like that, we plan our vacations way out. And so we don't do as many last minute things with the mileage program. So generally, she's on it like as soon as the, the window's starting to open, she's looking for those flights to get us to where we want to go. Definitely good strategy, especially with Alaska Mileage Plan, you know, to book at the booking window and, and try to get some of those seats when, when you know they're going to be there because, you know, the rest of the part of the year, I mean, it's, it is it is a complete crapshoot whether or not there'll be seats on the flight that you're looking for. Especially when you're looking for four seats. Yeah. Yeah. That's always a challenge. So let's shift. So we talked airline loyalty. Uh, what about hotels? With Brander, I thought it was really interesting in that there were some hotels that gave them, you know, that, that acknowledged elite status. And I think that gave him elite stays. Is that something that you focus on? Is that something that, that, that you see a lot in the US? Or is that maybe just kind of more normal overseas versus domestically? My guess is listening to him talk, it's probably a little bit more normal overseas. Uh, generally, uh, we've got a contractor that sets up our hotels now. And so some hotels we've been staying for years and in some places, the hotel changes over you know every three to six months, it seems like sometimes lately. And it really depends upon the actual hotel itself and, and whoever's working behind the desk. And so I guess I would say just from my experience, not very many people collect my hotel points or even miles. It's funny the the pilots I talk to that don't even think about using the credit card and miles and that I work with. But and it seems to be like when we get like a, a hotel that's brand new or one that we don't stay at very often, when we, when the crews are first coming in, they'll hey, if you if anybody wants to, you know, put down their Bonvoy card or their Hilton card or whatever else, we'll you know give you points, but they'll give you a stay, I guess. There's a part of me that just broke inside when you said that a lot of your colleagues don't collect miles and points. Generally, it's the guys that flew corporate before they came because they were collecting tons of you know hotel points and everything then. They've got like all the cards and they know the hotels because they, they pay attention to it. But I would say the, the vast majority do not participate. It's just interesting. TK and I often try to remind ourselves that we're the outliers and that, you know, in our, you know, never ending pursuit of miles and points for, you know, discounted travel. 
and just, you know, for folks that literally travel for their profession to not be collecting, it just seems a little bit, I'll say humorous. It doesn't seem right, right? <laughs> it does. I, I, it <laughs> yeah. I've got a Hilton card. I've been collecting Hilton points. It's not the best, I don't think. I think listening to you guys talk and other podcasts talk about, you know, the, the point system, there's, there's better cards out there, but that's kind of what I've been collecting over the last several years. I think some people have gotten really good value out of Hilton, though. I mean, especially some of the credit cards these that come with like the annual nightly certificates and things. I mean, they've been using them at really nice places. I know I've used some of mine at some Waldorf Astoria hotels at, you know, I go in and the lotion and the soap alone are things that I that I crave, <laughs> you know, because uh, and Trevor's laughing because he knows, you know, he he knows how much I love some of the lotion and the soap in these really, really high end hotels and because they just smell so great. And, you know, I leave smelling like, an you know, an orchard of oranges or something every time I leave the room. But anyway, Hilton's not a horrible uh, company to, to tie your loyalty, especially with some of these credit cards that are very, very, I think, compelling from the benefits that they provide for the annual fee. The one card, and I, I still have not done it, is the Chase Preferred card, because other pilots that are listening to this are going to, the majority of them will know, and it may offend one or two, but pilots are, are generally cheap. And so <laughs> there's a, I think it's the Chase Preferred where you can get food at the airports. There's a lot of like food places and oh, they'll, the- they, a lot of guys have that so that they can uh, get their food for free. They know all the, all the places in the different airports to get their meals in between flights. The Chase Sapphire Reserve, I think. That's it. That's it. And the Priority Pass club card that comes with it. And yeah, I have to tell you, the Pacific Northwest is a goldmine for Priority Pass restaurants. You know, between (laughs) Seattle Airport and Portland Airport, I guess between the two Capers markets and, you know, the various, like there's like a Vietnamese market and like there's another deli or something that you can just go by and just go crazy. And, and get all kinds of stuff. And, you know, it's funny, I go to Seattle airport, I go to SeaTac and, you know, I go to one and then, and then suddenly I go to the other one and then I see, oh wait, these were all the other people that were in line with me. <laughs> and you see that, oh yeah, that's not a surprise. <laughs> I can just see that now. Yeah, no, I think Hilton's a, definitely has some good value. They even have some good value. I haven't stayed there personally, but I've heard a lot of good things from the uh, Hilton Waikoloa on the Big Island, for example. I mean, I've been to that property a bunch of times, but at the time my wife was living in Hawaii. So we just kind of went there to enjoy the pool. <laughs> you know, that's a nice little property. I don't know how many points it is nowadays, but but Hilton has has really added some stellar properties. There's a They have a, a big presence in the islands, you know? I mean, I, I feel like between the Waldorfs and the Hilton's and, and, and all the other brands that they seem to definitely have quite a few properties and quite a few large, like expansive properties like Hilton Hawaiian Village and, you know, some of those like really massive hotels, right? With, with you know, hundreds of rooms. And then they've also got some just real gems overseas. A couple of years ago, we stayed at the, I think it's the Hagia Sophia Apartments or the Hagia Sophia Mansions. It's literally from our room, I could throw a tennis ball and I could have hit the dome of the Hagia Sophia mosque, church, well, was a church, now it's a mosque, in Istanbul. And it was not an expensive. It was maybe like 50,000 points or something back. Just some real gems. You just have to look a little bit harder. Look beyond the normal Hilton and what is it, Doubletree and you know those normal brands, and you can find some gems. I'm writing these down as you're talking. <laughs> that one in particular was really spectacular because you know they had you know a cistern right like where they would keep a reservoir of water but they had turned it into essentially a gigantic swimming pool slash kind of almost jacuzzi pool and it's just really interesting to be in there and at the time you know and I, I was there with with Trevor and, and his wife we were the only ones in that area and it was just great just you know having the whole place for ourselves yeah that was also in 2020 I should uh, 2021 2021 I, say. I think right. Yeah. And so I think they still had COVID procedures. So like you had to reserve it 
your time in the pool. So it was a private experience. It was really cool. And the way they sort of did it was they had put these, you know, the enclosure for the pool inside the, uh, you know, the cistern. So they were sort of protecting the walls of the cistern and I'd imagine the floor as well, but, you know, still giving you that pool experience. So, you know, that LXRs, there's a lot of, uh, Hilton's one of those, you know, it's a sleeper. Everybody talks about Hyatt and like, you know, the park Hyatts and stuff. Not a lot of people are talking. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. And I know that Sam and Robert on the main show do talk a fair bit of Hilton, but I don't know that a lot of other people are talking Hilton the way that, you know, given the amount of sleepers that they have. It seems like that's where the majority of our layovers are. So I've been able to, you know, keep my status up because of that, because I know that some of the hotels that they will give you the stays. So that's why I guess I'm just kind of stuck with it. So Trevor, would this be a good time maybe to pivot back to some questions, you know, kind of more of the pilot variety? I, I was kind of curious, you know, I think one of the things that seems to always be a mystery, at least to some of us in the traveling public is, you know, what happens with AROPs, you know, when those irregular operations where, you know, you get the delay because of weather, you get the delay because of, you know, equipment or whatever, you know, kind of one of the things that it's always very mystifying is, how do things like the timeout work? You know, like how is it that, you know, certain crew, you know, tend to timeout and that can sometimes, you know, make a, a delay even worse, you know, like what are kind of those scenarios? Because I imagine there's a lot of planning that goes into avoiding that exact scenario. And, and but sometimes obviously, you know, best laid plans, right? You, you're still going to have, you know, odd situations where things don't quite work out. Yeah, just the other day we had an ice storm actually up here in Portland. It didn't work out the day I flew because everything still got canceled. The ice was just too bad on the planes. But what they tried to do was pre-cancel. The airline tried to pre-cancel a bunch of the flights so that they didn't have as many planes to de-ice. And then they kind of tried to spread them out. So there's a lot of different ways they can try and mitigate it. The airline itself can try and mitigate it. But I think probably... And it's it's funny, I don't know how to say this other than that, well, let's just go back to the, the basics of it, I guess. So it, it really depends upon each crew, depends upon how long their day is planned for the flight that they're going to do or flights that they're going to do when they start the flights. So if you start early in the morning, say like there's a time period between about midnight and five o'clock in the morning where you just are not allowed to fly as many hours during the day. You're not allowed to work as many hours during the day. And so then once five o'clock hits, as I just dealt, the, dealt with this, about five o'clock, then you start looking at a crew duty day of 12 and a half hours and you can extend that out to 14. And then the pilot itself, he or she can extend it out another two hours now if they want to, if they feel like they're safe enough to fly. For non-international, we're limited to eight hours of actual flight time during the day. And then it also depends upon how many times you're planning on landing and taking off. So there's a lot of different factors into when a pilot will time out. Generally, like I said, there's a lot of different ways that the airlines can try to mitigate it. But for the most part, they'll they'll just keep the crew there until the last minute, you know, hoping that somehow it's going to work out. And I would say 90% of the time it does, or 95% of the time, it's amazing how many times you're like, okay, we got, if we don't get the door closed in the next 10 minutes, we're not going to be able to do this flight. And somehow it just all comes together and the door closes and off you go. And you have a long day <laughs> along with all the passengers too. So I don't know if that answers it. Would it be fair to say that like international flights probably are less subject to that? Because I mean, they have things like relief pilots and things like that. Is Does that typically why you see it more on maybe domestic legs? Correct. Correct. Yeah. Because you've got, you know, like an internet, I'm trying to think like, you know, some of the longer international flights are like 10 hours, but I'm not sure what their duty day is, but uh, yeah, you've got somewhere between four, 
pilots on board. So you've got the two pilots that are flying it and then you got the two relief pilots. So that extends their day a little bit longer. So when you run into those weather problems or ATC problems or whatever else, it's a little bit easier for them to pivot versus, you know, if, if you're unlucky and I've been the passenger in the back too, where I was in Philly one night and there's a snowstorm and we pushed back and I knew that the crew had come up from Dallas. It was a U.S. air flight and I was looking at my wife. I was like, they're going to time out because we're in this long line to take off. It was like, there's no way they have enough time to fly from Philly to Seattle. So yeah, if you're unlucky, that's kind of what usually causes the cancellations or the delays for when pilots time out. So circling back to the pre-canceling, I, I just have to ask this because I, I think we joke about it so often about folks kind of complaining, oh my gosh, you know, we need a backup crew or a backup plane. Do those crew members that are on a canceled flight essentially go back into the pool? Or is there some sort of negotiation that has to happen if there's a need for them to be on something other than what they had originally bid and, and received as they plan their month? They could. They could. So in a case like that, like say you show up at the airport, like the the, the day, it wasn't going to work the day that when we had the ice storm, but it's happened to me before where you, you show up, it doesn't happen very often, but when you, you show up and for whatever reason your flight is canceled or they put somebody else on your flight, they can put you on a different flight and cover something else where they need, they need a spot filled. So that can happen. Okay. So then the follow-up question on that, do you essentially, when you plan your trip, do you essentially pack for whatever weather might happen in any of the network? Like, you know, are you flying with a jacket, whether you're going to Miami or New York? No, no. The reserves do. Okay. So the basic schedule is set so that you've got people, pilots, flight attendants that are going to fly the trips. And then you have a, a subset of not in a negative way, but you've got another group of people that are reserves of the backup. So you can bid that. Your seniority may only hold being on reserve. And so then they can be called in last minute to fill somebody that either got sick or fill a hole where, where they have a hole or something like that. The reserves will pack for, especially if they're on for five or six days, they'll pack for everything. But for us, it's so rare these days. I mean, when the system breaks down, it, it's funny because you get so much attention. But the day in, day out of, of the airline flying is is pretty consistent as far as you're going to go where you're going to go. And so it's very rare that I end up someplace different like that if I was planning on going to Hawaii and end up in Nome, Alaska or something like that. No, that makes sense. And when you think about it, I mean, the amount of flying, uh, the amount of planes that, that fly every single day, I mean, you know, a lot of people, you know, poke at it. But the fact is, is that is just a miraculous thing, you know, all these different pieces moving, people moving, you know, millions of people, you know, well, probably more than millions of people a year. It is something to marvel at. The miracle of flight in the modern age, you know, you know, basically eating a meal, serving the internet, you know, in a metal tube, you know, 30,000 feet in the air. I mean, you got to love it. There's a pilot deadheading with us to Miami the other day, and he's a big Ravens fan. So he's in the back watching the Ravens play the uh, the football game. So, so yeah, it's just amazing what you can do now. My condolences. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so apparently that game was the most popular or most watched game in the history of NFL. <laughs> wow. It was. Oh, my. I missed it. I mean, that's what CNBC <laughs> tells me. So I want to pivot a little bit. And I know that we kind of pivot back and forth to your military experience just because I think, you know, it, it just it provides a little bit of interesting perspective. Do you remember, and I realize this is a, a little bit longer ago, but what were some of the surprises or discoveries that you had when you made that transition to becoming a commercial pilot? Honestly, from what I did in the military, there really wasn't that much of a difference. There is, and I'll get to it. But, but in all honesty, you know, flying cargo planes for the military, especially for the Air Force, it's it's very similar to what we do in the airlines. It's you know, crew concept. You know, you're working together as a team to get the plane from point A to point B. There's a captain. The captain has like the overall authority. But a long time ago, it's it's changed so that you know everybody can speak up, so that you know 
if, if somebody's got a better idea on how to handle a problem, the good captains will definitely, you know, search for that feedback. So in all honesty, there really wasn't too much of a difference that way, I guess. The one thing that's a little bit harder was with the Air Force, you were kind of in charge of getting things done. And so you, you were a lot more, you know, get down to see what's going on with the, with the maintenance in the plane is what's, how much longer is it going to be with the mechanics? And, and I could tell you, you know, generally go and talk to the mechanics well because you're just going to get in their their way and everybody's got it's way more you know you do your job everybody else does their job and when the other people get they're like kind of like pilot slash dispatcher slash you know yeah in the air force you were kind of out there leading the charge and getting it done with the airlines it's just kind of like well when that guy gets his job done then we'll get the plane going and we'll do our job to get you to from point a to point b it's not totally siloed like that, but it, it really is a lot more than what it was in the military. That was a little bit harder of a change for me. To, it seems counterintuitive. You know, you, you feel like, you know, you hear military, you always think, you know, regimented, you think, you know, uh, you know, c- command structure, you think, you know, but it sounds almost a little bit different than what you'd expect. Yeah. It's, I think it really has to do with the unions and I don't want to throw unions under the bus or anything like that, but it's, you know, it definitely kind of people keep their own turf and stay off of my yep. turf. Yep. That's exactly what I was thinking as you were saying that I was thinking to myself, it's got to be the unions because each function, you know, has their own, their own union rules. and their own rules. And, you know, in some cases, their own underlying motives, right? I mean, whereas the Air Force, there's a mission and everybody is responsible to execute that mission. And so just the way you described it, it just, I think, exemplifies that, you know, that focus on the mission versus, you know, those other motives that might appear in, um, you know, uh, I swear network. that the military does not pay us to do this podcast. And uh, this. <laughs> so I really am, uh, you know, just so you guys know, but it really is interesting how we've had t- two of these conversations and it's, it's so interesting how we can just see some of the finer points of things in, that the military does well, which is great. You know, it speaks a lot to the greatness of the U.S. and its military. Oh, without a doubt. So as we kind of press forward, what is your favorite perk of the job? Oh, for me, hands down is travel. I mean, that's that's really why I do it. You know, there's guys that own planes and they just can't wait to get out of the airline plane and into their own little plane and fly. And that's just not me. To me, it's just really getting out and traveling, seeing the world and meeting people. And that is what I really enjoy. And not only just the, you know, day in and day out work of it and going to different places. And like, I just, I'd never been to Miami before. This is the first time I went to Miami, which is kind of cool. So I spent all day yesterday just wandering all over downtown, the Brickell district and kind of the old area, just kind of checking it out and seeing what it was all about. But beyond just the work that the travel that my wife and our family has been able to do too, to, to go all over the place. I mean, I, sometimes you take it for granted, but I try not to take it for granted, if that makes sense. That is a new route, isn't it, for Alaska, isn't it? Is it the Seattle-Miami? We've been, well, they they did it a long time ago, and then they pulled out because Miami raised their rates to fly uh. into and out of there. And so then they pivoted to go to Fort Lauderdale because for the most part, we're just hauling cruise passengers down down there for the most part. And so it was cheaper to fly into Fort Lauderdale. But then I think it was about maybe about a year and a half ago, two years ago, that they started Miami. I mean, it makes sense with the one world you know tie-up with American that, that you'd, you'd fly into their major hub down there. So it just kind of makes sense, but that's pretty cool. And I guess I'll just throw one other thing out too. I mean, we probably like you guys too, we get to work with just some amazing people. Just the diversity of some of the people I get to work with is just amazing. And we get a lot of time to sit up there. I, I say you sit in a closet for five hours at a time and figure out how to how to have a conversation about things to talk about all different kinds of things. And I just flew with somebody that just lives, he lives down in Costa Rica. He's a big surfer just to listen to all the surf stories of you know living down there. And, and I think that's the other part that just makes me 
every day you're going to work with somebody different generally. And that's a lot of fun. Man, that's got to be know, a commute. <laughs> for As a longtime Alaska flyer, you know, I've always been very impressed with, you know, kind of the crew and they, they've always been just very friendly and warm and a lot more so than a lot of the domestic carriers. So, you know, I just remember even, you know, as a, as a coach passenger, you know, I'm sitting back there and, you know, I've got my cup of ice and, you know, I love my Diet Coke and the flight attendants were just the nicest people. They're just like, hey, can I fill that up for you? And I'm like, oh my God, that's the most amazing thing that you could do because I was like super thirsty or something. And just little things like that just remind me of, you know, the little niceties that are kind of part of the culture there, I think, that are just special. Our flight attendants are amazing. In all honesty, they really take care of the passengers back there. It's definitely different on Alaska compared to some of the other airlines. I definitely have to have to agree with you. So, Steve, flying 737s, you must board a 737 more times in a month than a year than just about any of us. Realizing that this past month we did have that incident, I'll say, on the 737 MAX 9, what makes you confident in the safety of the aircraft, if you can speak to that? And also, they did release the FAA or the air traffic control kind of logs. Can you kind of walk us through what might be in, in somebody's mind going through that sort of a, a situation? I have to believe that you, you know, you train for everything as you kind of, you know, maintain your license. Yeah, I totally understand that. I, I guess I would just say this about the 7.3. I mean, the plane has been around for so long and I know that the MAX is a, is a new variation of it, but I, I think it's proven itself over over time, I guess. And that's all mechanical things will have failures and there's different reasons for the failures. And I, I really can't speak to this one yet because as I was telling you before, we don't know any more than what everybody else knows. They don't tell us any, any more what has happened because it's an investigation as far as what happened to the Alaska flight. But those things are going to happen, and sometimes, I mean, hopefully, you know, thank goodness nobody, nobody was injured on that. But to your second point, I guess I would say is, I guess the first point I would say is, it's been a proven workhorse for the airline industry for years. And to me, I actually leaving and going to Honolulu tomorrow on an XGen 900, and I have no qualms, you know, getting on a plane and put my family on a plane tomorrow with that. Whether it was Max also, because I know that, it, I mean, they have been going over, I, I trust our mechanics. I trust our, you know, the safety system for the most part to go through and, and check everything. And so I don't have any qualms putting my family on board, uh, you know, a Max or any type of variant of the 737. But, but to your second point, you know, once again, you know, I just couldn't imagine actually going through that, but, but yeah, we train up for all these different kinds of scenarios. And the funny thing is, is it's generally not going to be what you train for that happens to you. It's always something a little bit weird, a little bit odd. It doesn't, doesn't quite make sense. And, but as you did, I listened to the pilots talk during the audio from this incident and everything like that. And there was a little confusion. That was what I heard, you know, at the beginning, but that's to be expected with a loud, you know, decompression. But from there, they just went right on into their training and got the plane down below, down to 10,000 feet, you know, where there's enough oxygen for the passengers, you know, kind of assess the situation and then brought the plane back in and landed. And that's kind of what you train for every year. I just did my training in November. You go up to the, I go up to Seattle. I spend three days in the sim. They give you all different kinds of scenarios and you don't know what's going to happen ahead of time. So it's, it's a good thing in that way of, you know, having a little bit of a surprise and how you react to it and, and handling the situation. And that training, absolutely, you know, head of the class, I, I have to believe. I will say there was an interesting podcast episode, another podcast called AvTalk from Flight Radar 24. Not sure if you've heard of that, where they had Steve Giordano, if I'm pronouncing his last name right, on kind of talking through that particular incident as well. So I would offer that that probably be an interesting episode to listen to if, if folks are interested in, in kind of listening to more on that. 
you know, I, I mean, kind of circling back to the earlier thoughts about automation and all the technology, you know, the thing that you can't do is you, you can't program and you can't, you know, engineer the unexpected. And that's why we need these pilots in, in, in the front, in the cockpit, because, you know, it's, it's their unique ability to be able to react and process and, you know, actually, you know, find a solution, you know, to problems that are, you know, life or death. And that seems to be why we probably are going to still see pilots sitting up there for, for quite some time, hopefully, probably for the rest of my life, I would imagine. You know, this is coming from an engineer at heart, you know, you know, I love solving problems, but you know, those are the type of problems that it's very hard to solve for. You can't solve for everything that could possibly happen every time, everywhere, you know, in the millions and trillions of, of billions of permutations of, of, of different things that could happen. Now, to your point, TK, that's exactly what it is. Because you kind of think that it's like all stick and rudder and, and that's all you're doing in these like some situations or, or, or things that we practice. But really what you're doing is that you're problem solving. You're like, here's the problem. What are all the things that could affect um, get you getting the plane to a, a you know a safe conclusion on the ground somewhere? And you got to kind of run through all those different things and then use all your resources to talk to different people that from the ground potentially to air traffic control to the people in the back, uh, flight attendants in the back to, to come up with a solution and then land it. So yeah, it's really a problem solving situation, as you said, TK. Yep. It's an interesting, you know, that's what you're there to do. Not just really fly the plane, but, you know, really solve the issues as they come. I do have another question, you know, so I think, you know, obviously you're probably more of a consummate traveler than, than like 99% of the people out there. You know, I'm just curious what your experience as a pilot, you know, how has that kind of influenced your style of travel now? I mean, do you feel like you travel differently or, or has that experience kind of informed the way that you travel maybe differently than, than, than it was before? I think what it's given me is just the ability to branch out and feel comfortable just about anywhere, I guess, because I've been to so many different places and to look for those experiences that are outside of the box a little bit more rather than, you know, you get, you go to a city and like, this is the touristy area. Everybody goes to the touristy area. I'm always looking for those restaurants that the locals go to. I'm always trying to find something outside of the box that is just a little bit different. And that's definitely found its way into how we travel as a family too. We still do some of the touristy things. Don't get me wrong. But. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very wise way to travel. You know, I mean, you know, do what the locals do. I mean, that's usually a, a pretty strong rule to live by, you know, in terms of uh, international or even just travel in, in general. And I think that's an interestingly hard challenge when you think about it to try to do more authentic travel, right? You, you know, yeah, you want to hit the touristy things, but as we travel more and more, I've been trying to figure out how can you do something a little bit more authentic or, you know, in theory, it seems like it'd be more authentic. We watch a lot of shows. I'm sure you guys watch, uh, used to watch Anthony Bourdain. Eugene Levy is on uh, The Reluctant Traveler on Apple uh, Apple TV. You know, they have some of these experiences, you know, cooking in a home, you know, that sort of thing. And it just feels more authentic than just kind of, you know, going to the Hard Rock in London and the Hard Rock in, you know, the, I assume there's one in Amsterdam. Uh <laughs> And some of the other touristy things, it's just so hard to find those and to kind of identify those, at least in my experience. No, it is. And I guess I don't really have a really good answer to that other than to to say that like, there's just like a lot of different, I think like with the rise of Airbnb sometimes now, we've had some really good experiences there where we've met our Airbnb hosts that have been able to give us a little bit more direction on the city rather than what you would get just going to a hotel nothing wrong with going to hotels or whatnot. There's like a, we use this a lot. There's several like free, like walking tours that you can do. And so we'll look for like a free walking tour in a city. And then, and usually they'll be a great source of information to, you know, find restaurants and, and other cafes or whatever else, or maybe, you know, some place to get a, a drink in the evening. That's kind of more your angle, which you're kind of looking for. So uh, just, just a couple of tips that we've used, I guess. 
Those are great tips. The best we've found is just kind of wandering around and seeing where families are. We happened upon this nice little cafe in Venice on Murano Island. It was a you know probably about five ten minute walk from the Hyatt Centric there, and we're literally just watching everybody kind of come as the day came to a close. They all know each other. <laughs> the kids are playing with the other family's kids. They brought a, you know one brought their dog, and it was just a wonderful thing to kind of just just you know be a part of, but not really be a part of, and at least you know kind of just observe. But Steve, we really appreciate you coming on here. We're just about at the end of our time. Where can our listeners find you? Well, they can follow me on Instagram. I guess it's just my name, Steve Creasy. I'm trying to put K R I E S E. That's, you know, I try to put pictures up there with our travel quite a bit. I used to do a podcast with a couple of people that covered Disney Cruise Line. I used to do a lot of cruising with them. I'm kind of stepping away from that right now. So, probably the best way to do it is through Instagram. Great. And Steve, you know, it's funny. We talk a lot of cruising. If you ever want to come on and, and talk Disney cruising, you're more than welcome, sir. If you want me to come on and talk about that, it's a, I did the podcast for seven years and we've been on like 18 or 19 of those cruises now. So I could talk you oh my. probably. <laughs> I would love it. You know, we've been doing quite a few episodes about cruising and, you know, most of my cruising has been on Royal Caribbean. Um, okay. So I've, I've never taken a, a Disney cruise and I probably need to do that one of these days. Everybody thinks it's like for kids. Our kids are a little bit older. We did one over Christmas and our 17 year old and 13 year old, uh, they found their group of kids and they had just a blast running all over the ship and I can't uh, imagine doing things like that. And so it gave my wife and I a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of time together to just uh, chill out, listen to some great music and enjoy the evenings. Well, I could just tell you, it's just been a wonderful pleasure. You know, I love hearing about, you know, your experience as a pilot. You know, I definitely, you know, we generally have to pay to do what you do, get paid for. So, you know, that's why I sometimes, uh, you know, dream of being a gate agent or something. You know, I, of course, my dreams don't usually involve passengers. So that's probably why it's still a dream. But anyway, you know, I think the thrill of the travel and, and, and just loving what you do, I, I, I'm very envious and, and I'm so glad for the time that we had and just the wonderful conversation. Thanks, TK. That means a lot. And thank you so much for having me on. And thanks so much for what you guys do and providing the, the, just the traveling community. I mean, there's so much to learn for all of us to travel a little bit better with all that you guys bring to your podcast. I really appreciate that as well. Well, that's the show. Thanks for joining us. And we hope you enjoyed listening. Thanks, everybody. If you've enjoyed this episode, consider becoming a Milenomics Patreon member and get access to even more in-depth miles, points, and travel content. Until then, we hope your next story is a travel story. 